Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 1st, 2022. Talking to you, as always, from California, from Northern California. New month, old subject. We've talked so much in this show about the impact and language of race on American politics. For some people, it doesn't exist at all. For others, it's completely ubiquitous. We did a show with the historian Kevin Boyle at the beginning of August, who believes that America remains haunted by Nixon and his paranoia, particularly about race. Um, Boyle wrote about it in his book, The Shattering America in the 1960s, as if American language hasn't developed since the 1960s. And I did a show at the beginning of this week with Dana Milbank, the Washington Post columnist, who believes that the Republicans have become the destructionist party. Uh, he argues this in his book, The Destructionist, 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, in, we, in which he argues that uh, often when the Republicans are talking, they're talking about race, they have their own language and codes which uh, they themselves understand. It's a legacy of Nixon in some ways. Also did a show earlier this week with Dahlia Lithwick, um, who has a new book out on the Supreme Court, Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. She suggested to me that often when conservatives, particularly on the Supreme Court, talk about abortion, they're also talking in a coded language of race. Um, sometimes we've just talked explicitly about race and racist language. We did a show uh, a few days ago with Linda Villarosa, who has an important new book out, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, focusing on the language of race and racism in the American healthcare system. The real question, of course, is can Americans talk without talking about race and how conscious or unconscious are they? Uh, my guest today, uh, Patricia A. Turner, is a very distinguished folklorist. She teaches in the African-American Studies Department at UCLA, uh, and she's given a huge amount of thought to this. She has a new book out, Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Law and Race in the 21st Century. Uh, Patricia, uh, welcome. Uh, before we talk about uh, trash talk specifically and um, the racist language, which often, so to speak, greeted um, President Obama, perhaps you might talk about language and race and whether Americans can really ever escape from it. Uh, for some particularly on the left, particularly in the so-called woke community, uh, all whites are guilty of talking about race, even when they don't know it. How do you approach this stuff? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? It's very tricky. I think that people get into the position um, that the folks you're talking about on the left of of, of trying to refine their language to a point where there's no possible potential of offense being taken. And the position on the right is that tried and true language that um, um, many would perceive as problematic 
is what they grew up with, that they have no harm behind it. So language exemplifies, I think, many of the extremes that we get in the differing positions of the right and the left. Uh, you're also um, the author of a number of other books on the African-American community. One, Crafted Lives, Stories and Studies of African-American Quilters. My wife's a quilter. She particularly enjoyed that one. I heard it through the grapevine, rumor in American, African-American culture. You're, as I said, a, a folklorist and a, a professor of, um, of rhetoric. What do you bring to this that most of us don't have as a folklorist and as someone trained in rhetoric? I think that um, folklorists tend to be particularly attuned to everyday life and to the manifestations of language, of material culture. We look at proverbs, rumors, legends, and conspiracy theories are, are my bailiwick, uh, stories, uh, folk tales, music, and we have a toolkit of, of, of theories and methodologies that we apply to all of that. But, but many people don't look to the, the language of everyday life um, as frequently as they look at the secondary sources and sort of, sort of the way in which, which um, others have interpreted power struggles. So... And I, and I know this is probably a rather simplistic question, which doesn't have a simple answer, but does power manifest language or is language itself create these structures of power? Or are they too hard to separate? I think they're very hard. They're very hard to separate. I think that um, power assumes a kind of control of language and a kind of dominance in its, its, its expression, there's a way in which it's articulated as though everyone will, 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 will take it for granted. But the, 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 those without power often can command a moment through their language skills. I mean, moment like um, um, the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer uh, didn't have formal education from Mississippi, which is very much in the news right now. I guess that's why I'm thinking about... Um, uh, 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 yeah, especially about abortion, right? Yeah. Well, well, what Hamer did, though, during the Democratic National Convention in, the, in, the, in, in 1964, when she went with the Mississippi Freedom Party to be seated at the convention, and they were turned down, in order to um, mitigate the the impact that she and this party were having on the voting public, Lyndon Baines Johnson scheduled a press conference from the White House so that it would interrupt the coverage of her. And she took the, a microphone that was in front of her from the convention and began to sing an African-American spiritual. And that's what led the news. And that's the moment that everyone remembers and that influence. So there are times when those who ostensibly don't have what we think of as the attributes of power in terms of education and finances and real estate and political position, who know how to use what they do have uh, in service to what they want to accomplish. Let's talk about this new book, Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Law and Race in the 21st Century. 
Would it be fair to say that one of the reasons why Obama came to power is because he knew how to talk white? If there's such a thing as talking white, again, I don't mean to sound racist on either front, although I'm sure most people will somehow figure out a way of accusing me either of one kind of racism or another. But he was a man who was comfortable in both worlds, both or is comfortable in both the black and the white world, isn't he? Yeah, I think that that's certainly a part of what he brought to the stage was the ability to speak um, and to have all of that education that was behind him be clear, you know, this is this is this is someone with a marquee education, and that always came across. Uh, I think I think quite clearly, but not necessarily. I think he was better than 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 uh, many others at not conveying too, too much in the minds of many people. Um, uh, too, too much um, multisyllabic words and jargon that often goes mm. above the heads of of everyday voters. He was able to have been the the editor of law review at Harvard without lapsing into that, and and not all of the Harvard law review editors can do that. In that sense, he was rather like Bill Clinton, of course, from an entirely different background, who also was beloved within the African American community, probably. The second most popular president uh, for African Americans in American history. What, how would you distinguish between Clinton's use of language, popular language in particular, and Obama? There's a way in which I think President Clinton had a little bit more flexibility at times to come across as folksy, as, um, you know, down with the people in the community. Whereas I think Barack Obama was always aware that there was a segment of the voting public that was just waiting for him to lapse into street language, to, to show his true colors in some way or another. So I think that he actually had to be more more on guard um, against those kinds of accusations than than President Clinton ever had to be. And of course, Clinton had his sister soldier moment, for better or worse. Absolutely. Uh, I guess Obama never had that. It wouldn't have made much sense. No. So let's 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 deal with the book. It, it's more a book about anti-Obama law and the lingering legacy of racism in 21st century America than it is about Obama. Is that fair? Absolutely. I use Barack and Michelle Obama um, as exemplars for what African-Americans, many African-Americans um, at the beginning of, the, of, of, of this century have had to confront. It's not necessarily the racism we think of Again, going back to the 1960s with, with Fannie Lou Hamer, it's not so much about dogs being unleashed on you on the street um, as it is about accusations that Michelle faced that um, her um, um, senior thesis at Princeton was a radical manifesto um, and people taking paragraphs from her thesis and taking out sentences that um that that explained explained the language that she was using there and then circulating that 
uh, the, 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 this this chopped up thesis on social media as a way of saying that she was uh, a, a radical. That's the kind of 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 um, attack that twenty first century African Americans had to grapple with. That was a bit different than what was faced in the nineteen sixties. What about the sexual aspect? The representation particularly of african-american women as insatiably sexual which probably is mixed up in the way in which the obama the michelle obama myths or lies were distributed as well yeah i mean i think that that what's very interesting about the the way in which barack gets attacked is virtually every aspect of his identity is flipped on its head so People um, accused him, he's a Christian, people accused him of being Muslim. He is a, a Democrat, a, a capitalist, people accused him of being socialist. He is a straight man, people accused him of being gay, and there's a whole series of beliefs that I go through. I didn't know about that. Who accused him of being gay? Oh, tens of, hundreds of thousands of people. Bathhouse Barry, Google Bathhouse Barry. Um, they've, they've cleaned, they've scrubbed a lot of this off of the, uh, off of the internet, but, um, wow. but, but bathhouse Barry is the accusation that he is gay. And so how do you explain Michelle and the girls if, if he is actually gay? Well, um, as I talk about in my chapter on Michelle, again, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, um, millions online refer to her as Michael and say that she was born a man and that she had um sex change operation when after playing football in college um there are still videos on youtube that haven't been scrubbed where um when someone refers to her as michelle other people in the comments section will will call her michael or big mike um and that that um is often accompanied by some of the memes have pictures of her with um uh, uh, knit dresses on where people will claim to see the bulge of a, a penis in the dress. Uh, there are all kinds of quasi-scientific analyses of her facial features to, tell, to explain to people how this reflects plastic surgery that happened to, to minimize her male features. So, so she, because of this desire to, to undermine every aspect of Barack Obama's identity, the, 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 the flips, the, 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 the companion piece to that is, the, is undermining every aspect of Michelle's identity. Um, Pat, you've obviously given a great deal of thought and spent a huge amount of time looking at this Obama, anti-Obama law in trash talk. A lot of it is extremely depressingly familiar. Is there anything new new kind of racist tropes come up with Obama or is it simply a repeat of, of everything that's happened in terms of the way in which African-Americans, particularly successful African-Americans are treated uh, by parts of the white community in American history? So I start in 2004 when Barack Obama emerges on the scene having nominated uh, um, John Kerry for the presidency. That's the moment at which most people became familiar with him. And then I track through his first and second administrations. And then 
into the, the post-Obama years. Now, in terms of what's so, so in terms of what's new, um, after he leaves office, he gets both what I would say traditional anti-black tropes. So there's there's a whole series of accusations that the people who cleaned the White House between the Trumps moving in and the Obamas leaving found hash pipes and drug paraphernalia and other indicators that Barack and Michelle were getting high in um, the quarters the, 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 of, the, of the White House. That's as old as, um, you know, that's, that's a very old one that, 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 that all Blacks are, you know, secretly doing drugs all the time. Um, a new one that, that can only sort of occur because he's been the president of the United States, and this is sort of antithetical to the drug abuse one, is that he and Michelle remained in Washington, D.C. so that they could oversee a deep state, that he had embedded bureaucrats and high-level appointees in significant agencies throughout Washington, and that he and they intended to undermine the Trump agenda at every opportunity. Right, right. I, I take that. But what's different about that than all the, the nonsense about Hillary Clinton and Pizzagate and all, all, all the other mythology? It's, Why it's is it all connected. It's new. What's new about it is that it was being attached to a black man. So, yes, that that people would. But I mean, he was black. So, I mean, you can't change that. No, but if you look, if you look traditionally at the kinds of, if the kinds of tropes that have been um, thrust against African Americans, that we're too smart, that we're that smart, that we could come up with a way of manipulating the government after leaving office, that's not normally one that we've gotten in the past. We had, a, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Uh, Randall Kennedy's been on the show a couple of times interesting to see his reaction to some of the things you're saying. He has a new collection of essays out, Say It Loud, on race, law, history, and culture. I think, and again, I don't want to put words in Kennedy's mouth, especially since he's not here, and he's quite capable of speaking for himself. But my guess is he might suggest that there's a little bit, not maybe in your work, but in some people's minds, a, a too much sensitivity that any criticism of Obama, whatever it is, is interpreted in racial terms. Is there some truth to that, Pat? I mean, can one be critical of Obama without touching on race? Absolutely. You can. I, th I think during his presidency, there were times and there were many people who pointed to disagreements with what he was doing, you know, what his political actions were. Um, and I think for any president, any elected official, it's always completely legitimate to, to if you have a different political position to point to that. Um, and so 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 that's that's certain certainly the case. But what we got with Obama in magnitude that we haven't gotten with prior politicians is this corpus of really um, vitriolic, um, accusations that really weren't rested in what he was doing, but were vested in who people said he was. He wasn't 
born in the United States and he had misrepresented um, um, his, his, his birthplace and all of the efforts around perpetuating that and trying to create a constitutional crisis uh, around that. That wasn't about um, his, his ideas about what the space program should or shouldn't be or what healthcare should or shouldn't be. All of that's fair, fair grounds for criticism. But he, you know, there, there were, there were um, websites and blogs and uh, Facebook pages and, and, and Twitter accounts whose sole purpose were around attacking him based solely on his identity. Speaking of vitriol, uh, Pat, not, we have, of course, the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room, literally, Donald Trump. Uh, we had a show a couple of years ago with Jennifer Machica, Merceza, uh, like you, a professor of rhetoric. She had a book out on the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. She's not a fan of, of Trump, but she <laughs> sees him as a, a very gifted uh, rhetorician. Um, how much of Trump's success do you think as a politician is rooted in his assault, mostly racist assault on um, on Obama? I mean, Trump is guilty of many examples of racism, the Central Park stuff before Obama, but it seems as if this only caught fire after he sort of knitted together in one of your crafted lives, almost a parody of a crafted life, knitted together all these rumors to build a political campaign for presidency, which is really a racist campaign against Obama. Yeah, I don't think that Trump would have been elected president without having appealed to voters who wanted, um, wanted someone in the White House who was the antithesis of what Barack Obama represented. Um, one of the, I've, I've got a chapter in the book about the, the, the whole Muslim belief cycle. And that's an interesting one in that John McCain, of course, um, Obama's opponent in yeah. 2008, was very famously at a campaign rally and talking to his audience. And one of the members of his audience started talking about how scared she was that Obama would be elected president. And she went down the Muslim path as her reason for that. McCain takes the microphone from her and says, well, no, that's not, that's really not true. And he's a, he's a, he's a good family man. And that's not why you should vote for me. You should vote for me because um, my policies and my practices are going to be different from his, but but I'm I'm not going to you know back this this notion that 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 he's a Muslim. I I end that chapter with a, a campaign rally of Donald Trump before his election, where he is bashing Obama for the um, Iran nuclear deal, and one of the members of his audience starts chanting that it's because Obama is a Muslim. And Trump gets the microphone to that man and stirs the audience up and then does this whole sort of song and dance with the media and said, oh, I'm supposed to reprimand him, aren't I? You're reprimanded. And uh, But clearly the audience is just reveling, reveling in um, Trump's, Trump's um, um, dislike 
and hatred for, for, Barack, for, for Barack Obama. Let's remember that John McCain did not get elected and Donald Trump did. Um, that part of the voting base, um, you know, he was someone that they would work for. Many members of McCain's uh, followers who were interviewed after that incident, the, the woman's name is um, Gail Quinnell, after that, after that incident, talked about um, losing a little bit of faith in the candidate, and, you know, they were Republicans, they'd been campaigning for him, but they didn't like that he was willing to give Obama a pass on this. Many of the images from January 6th are etched, burnt into our consciousnesses, particularly the image of the men with the Confederate flags. What was your interpretation of January 6th in the context of your book, Trash Talk and Anti-Obama Law? Um, the fact that white men were proudly carrying Confederate flags around uh, a building where, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a political a building in which uh, Obama had, quote unquote, ruled over a few years earlier. Yeah. I mean, I think it was certainly, it's certainly one of the most saddest of all of the developments, right? That um, um, I think part of the reason why the Capitol and the, 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 the great buildings of, of, of Washington and spaces are less sacred to the January 6th insurrectionist is that they have been, I think they would say, sullied or dirtied by the presence of African-Americans, of, 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 of Barack Obama and John Lewis. They're, they're not as holy to them anymore because actually African-Americans um, um, have been welcomed there and, 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 and have had held seats of, of, of power there. The whole mantra of make America great again, of course, the again that that crowd is often looking back to is before when you could proudly display the Confederate flag and when individuals weren't comporting themselves the way you thought they should, you could bring a noose along and string them up and, 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 and lynch them. There was so much of that, um, so much of that in the in the in the manifest the ways in which that group manifests themselves on 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 January sixth and Trump and his folks were still blaming Obama. One of the conspiracy theories that was the most uh, salient at that time accused Barack Obama of having conspired with the then Prime Minister of Italy back in two thousand sixteen to manipulate via satellite the Dominion voting machines so that Biden votes would be swapped to, uh, uh, Trump votes would be changed to Biden votes via the, this, this you know, scientifically implausible uh, 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 scenario. That's one of the beliefs that Trump was most adamant that Mark Meadows try to track down and try to convince the public of around January 5th or, or January 6th. Again, I haven't looked for it lately. People will put up the video relevant to this on YouTube and then it will get taken down. But, the, you know, there, there, were, there were over a million hits on that sucker on January 5th. And that's still being replayed even today, this latest uh, raid, if that's the right word, on Mar-a-Lago now has about a lot about what about Obama parallels, claims that Obama 
hid uh, as many uh, documents, apparently 30 million pages, mostly lies. What about um, Trump's language, Pat? Uh, one point, uh, Trump famously said that he liked smart and sharp Barack Obama. Is that coded language, almost from slavery? Um, I think, you know, I think that in that moment, the best position for Donald Trump to take in that moment was to say something flattering about Barack Obama. And I think he thought of that as flattering at at that time. Um, I think Trump, I, I think whenever we try to think that there's some sort of undergirding logic to what Donald Trump is saying and presenting, that's that's sort of a non-starter. He says whatever he thinks will make him look good in a given moment. And if he takes a position in 1999 that's different than what he took in 2001, that's irrelevant to him. He said what he had to say in 1999 to make himself look good, and he'll say in 2001 something that's completely different. So there was probably a period of time when Barack Obama uh, was was up and coming. Remember, there was a point where, where Trump was a Democrat, where he was um, um, pro-choice. Um, when if there, if there, we've had the, it's so hard to get, and I don't use this, I use this word carefully to trump soul. It's doubtful he has one, but there's some, there is an inner core, is it? Racism. His father certainly was a racist. Yeah, I mean, I think the default position, the default position is is a racist one. Um, the 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 history of the real estate dealings wow. between his father and then himself with his buildings and so forth is pretty clear on that front. And I was in New York when the Central uh, Park incident happened. And, uh, um, you know, that 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 was deplorable to take to take an ad out in the newspaper. I mean, it was it was simultaneously, I think, a reflection of his racism and his desire to always put himself in the spotlight. So there's a way in which the news is covering the the Central Park incident, and he has to intrude himself into that, and so he can do that by drawing you know drawing attention that way, and 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 you know insisting on 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 the death penalty even before there was a trial. Pat, let's end. Try and end positively, um, as you note in your book, um, the 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 promise of the presidency uh, didn't realize itself in some sort of post-racial America. We've done a number of shows imagining that post-racial uh, America. For example, uh, one with uh, Justin Guest, uh, How to Avoid Civil War in America by Creating a Post-Racial Civic Identity. Uh, Pat, what did we or what have we learned from the Obama presidency and perhaps the trash talk that you've studied to prepare us for potentially a post-racial world? By 2045, uh, Dana Milbank reminded me of this, uh, whites will no longer be in a majority in America. So post-race is, is a demographic reality, it may not be a political or cultural reality. 
Um, what can we learn from anti-Obama law about moving beyond it? Well, I mean, I think that the next step has to be to acknowledge it and to figure out figure out ways of communicating to the populations that subscribe to it that they're actually being manipulated. There's there's another whole thread in my my book about the fact that um, it becomes merchandised. There are people whose livelihoods suddenly depend on their ability to keep the birther beliefs alive. Um, that you know there are uh, individuals who want to support themselves by keeping QAnon adherents happy. And I think and Trump's a little like that. I mean, he's yeah, Trump is an example. He's, 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 he's absolutely the 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 the, the, the ultimate grifter. And you know, the idea of grifting was central to a lot of the the theories of the Democ of the Republican Party. So most of us don't like to be taken advantage of financially, and but a lot of times you don't realize it's happening. I think a lot of the people who um, um, as I say, the people who've gotten wrapped up in QAnon, the, the birthers before them and so forth, they're being manipulated by people who, who, who want to make money off of them. I think that the ways in which we as in, in, in education can sort of make people aware of that. Like I recently went online because I needed new outdoor furniture. And it probably will not surprise you that my feed all the time now is populated with examples of outdoor furniture for me to consider. Um, and everybody knows that pattern, but they don't realize that when they go online looking for- so you, you mean you use maybe Google's Chrome browser or something like that? Yeah, um, that, that also you're being fed the political positions and the advertisers for them um, are 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 key in 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 what's in what's happening. I think that politicians need to take this material, or the the people behind the politicians really need to be reading and scrutinizing the comments sections that follow um, a speech by their candidate, or any time the, the you know that that that's where I go looking for the language. You know, that's one of my best sources is after a speech or after a, a story to go mine the comments and see what people are saying. But it shouldn't just be nerdy academics like me. It should be the political the political um, um, infrastructure people around these campaigns so that they know. You said, I was sort of surprised you weren't, weren't familiar with Bathhouse Barry. I would certainly hope that the people who were trying to get Hillary in office were familiar and knew what districts they were in, and that that those, you know, develop some strategies around working around that. Well, it's certainly an interesting and important book. Congratulations um, on that um, trash talk. It's just out: um, anti-Obama law and race in the twenty-first century uh, by Patricia A. Turner. Important book. Patricia, congratulations on that. What else um, are you reading these days to make sense of the world apart from buying furniture online? <laughs> um, well, I am, um, I guess I'm, it's summer. So one does more escapist literature in the summer after you've, uh, after you've finished writing a book. So 
I started the summer off with a book entitled Horse um, by Geraldine Brooks. It's a fictionalization mm. of the story of um, was probably the some of the first black jockeys. My my own father was an African-American horseman. I grew up around horses. It's one of the things that people don't often um, associate with African-Americans. And Brooks does a wonderful, a wonderful one of these where there's part of the story is taking place in current times and part of the story is taking place in the antebellum era in Kentucky and moving back and forth around around a, a, a racehorse. So that was a, that was a good start to my summer. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, I've also been thinking, I'm one of these people who um, gives get books as gifts. Um, so Christmas is coming up and I'm like, what books am I going to give to, to, to my folks? And I'm, I'm going to go back to one this year that I gave out last year, which is titled The Home Place by J. Drew Lanham. Uh, he is an African-American ornithologist Again, there's not a whole there's 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 not a whole lot of of African American ornithologists, but he writes about growing up in the South and how um, how his introduction to nature turned him into um, the respected scientist that he is today. Um, I'm a I'm a birder myself, so I'm I'm very drawn I'm very drawn to um, actually books about uh, birds and and birding. So very sort of different than. Uh, than what I do um, with rumors, legends, and conspiracy theories, which got to have balance. Yeah, well, um, Christmas is coming, and I would uh, I would add uh, your book, uh, Crafted Lives, about quilters. My wife's a big fan of that book. If anyone in your family, for our viewers and listeners who are quilters, uh, Patricia's book on um, Crafted Lives is a wonderful piece. Thank you.